Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Have you ever had a ton of work to do only to be pulled into long meetings with people who talk endlessly to avoid action? You know that feeling when you have a simple question for customer service, but the automated attendant makes you answer 15 pointless questions, and then when you get to a human being, they ask the same 15 questions over again, and then, right before you finally get to ask your question, the call drops? Frustration and agitation set in as you twirl your worry beads and shake your nervous legs under the desk. Now imagine that the whole world is trying to stop you from delivering an urgent message that is a matter of life and death. What would you do? Richard and I discuss Mark chapter 2 verses 14 to 28. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 148 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Once again, Richard and I were talking this morning, just preparing for today's session, and we were struck by the importance of sticking with the theme of the section within the chapter and the chapter within the book. If you approach the story of Levi's calling and the subsequent debate over the Sabbath without holding on to the concept of the urgency under which Jesus labors. Remember the repetition of ethis, ethis, ethis immediately. If you're not holding on to that, you are going to fall in the trap of debating the very questions that Jesus is telling us are irrelevant. People try to hold up Jesus. They clog the street so he can't move through. Jesus has to move around the crowds. In general, the people are getting in Jesus's way. The true disciples are the ones who have the shortest conversations with him. When he had the conversations with the fishermen, he said, let's go. They didn't even say anything. They just went. You got a job to do. I'm going to be there. I'm there to support you. And we're going to keep moving. Understanding that as an important theme, if not the theme of Mark, helps us unlock the different stories that we may have different ideas about because we're used to reading them out of context. This is why the function centurion is presented, for example, in Matthew in a positive light. Because the centurion, being a traditional Roman by necessity, not being a Hellenized Roman, he can't be in his function as centurion. In that function, he is he submits to authority, he understands the he understands the urgency and importance of hierarchy, and he follows orders. It relates very much to what we said about the household church in the Pauline epistles. It's all connected to the traditional household in the Roman Republic before Hellenization and the rise of Caesar. So when you talk about Jesus and people 
reacting to him, you have to think about it like you're in the trenches on the battlefield. If the platoon commander says to you, go do this, and then you want to have a discussion with him about what it means and why and shouldn't we see what they're doing. The last platoon leader we had didn't make us do that. You're going to end up in big trouble. That's why the centurion, I don't want to say centurions are good. That's a Hellenistic philosophical statement. I'm saying very often in the Gospels, the function centurion shows deference to the Torah on the lips of Jesus because that function understands the importance of following orders. The quick deference to Jesus and Jesus' mission is what is, I will say, good. I'm putting that in, in quotes because this is one who understands the mission of Jesus, that Jesus does not have time for the discussion, for the debate. He will teach, and then he will move on. You either get the lesson or you don't get the lesson. He doesn't have time for remedial lessons. This is a really important point about the Roman Republic. I'm not saying the gospel endorsed pre-Hellenistic Roman culture per se. I'm telling you that the Paulian school recognized in pre-Hellenic Roman culture which was tribal, organized around authority and command, and was focused on community, not individual, that the Paulian school saw an opportunity to co-opt that culture and reorient it, not towards the will of the people of Rome, but towards the will of God's teaching. And that's exactly what's happening here. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. So Levi is of the tribe Levi, which is the priestly tribe. And interestingly, in this verse, you have a priest or someone from the priestly tribe collecting taxes for Caesar. So Jesus is already choosing as his follower somebody who would be considered an Uncle Tom by the Judean community, especially those in Jerusalem. And what's interesting is that this Uncle Tom figure got up immediately and followed Jesus. That's exactly the point. Follow me, and he left. One verse, no discussion. This is what happened with the fishermen. This is how Jesus' disciples are characterized. Now we see it's a pattern in Mark. Jesus' disciples are the ones who don't say anything, but get up and follow and are ready for action. And that's it. So anyone who is listening, who considers themselves a follower of Jesus, understand the paradigm that Mark sets out for this. Very few words, all action. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. So this is emphasized now. It's a pouring on for emphasis. More tax collectors, more sinners are coming to follow Jesus, to follow his instruction, without hesitation. So there's something going on here. People who are blatantly unrighteous have no difficulty understanding the gospel which proclaims their unrighteousness. It's very interesting to see that Jesus is willing to sit and eat with these people as opposed to before when he had to slip out under the cover of night so that people wouldn't bother him. Because here he is sitting with, like it says, tax collectors and sinners, which means that they are people to whom the teaching applies and they are not asking anything of him they are simply ministering to him so that he can continue to teach feeding Jesus so that he can teach is not a problem whatever you're doing as long as it's 
allowing Jesus to teach, expediting Jesus' ability to teach. It's okay. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious elite, the educated, the supposed teachers. And remember, Paul was a Pharisee. So the writers of the New Testament who are in the Pauline school are being self-critical here. It's always important to remember that. They're asking the wrong question. Jesus is on the move. Jesus is driving the point home that we have nothing to do but teach. And it's the teachers of Israel who are asking about their neighbor's behavior and whether or not they're correct. They're sitting back and judging. They're judging Jesus. They're also judging Jesus's followers who are acting correctly. And they're doing it from the seat of Moses. So there's a kind of deep hypocrisy and deep self-righteousness here. Because insofar as their premise is wrong, they don't understand that they are not doing the one thing that is needful. It reveals that they don't understand Jesus's mission. Jesus's mission is to teach. So you say, why is Jesus sitting with his people who don't understand, who don't know? Well, it would make sense for Jesus to sit with people who don't understand, who don't know, because he's a teacher. The scribes of the Pharisees want Jesus to sit with the people who know. But if Jesus is sitting with the people who know, he is wasting his time. And as we've seen, he has no time to waste. The other thing, I'm starting to notice a pattern with these scribes and these Pharisees. Because in the last section, we saw that they were reasoning in their hearts. Here, they approach the disciples. How come these scribes and Pharisees don't actually want to talk to Jesus? They don't actually address their question to Jesus. They talk among themselves. They talk among their disciples. They are not interested in learning. They won't talk to the teacher. I, I don't want to transgress the throne of the mighty apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee, but I'm starting to think that the scribes and the Pharisees are from Minnesota. Because a Minnesotan, if he has a problem with you, will tell everyone around you except you out of cowardice. No one can be direct. I mean, it's a problem we deal with in corporate America, teaching people to be direct and to address problems directly and so forth. I mean, they're being passive aggressive. But and they're feeding. And the worst part of this kind of passive aggression is that they hold the power in the Jerusalem hierarchy. And they are attacking the flock. They're not going after the head. And this is what happens in the Pauline epistles. They attack Paul's flock as wolves among sheep. And Paul goes to them directly in Galatians, but they're not direct with Paul. And Paul talks, and he uses the terminology, orthopodeo, right? They're not straightforward. They don't walk in a straight line. It's crooked behavior. They don't want to learn from Jesus. If they were to talk to Jesus directly, they know that he would put them to shame, and they would actually be shown to not know. And obviously, they've judged the people that Jesus is sitting with as the people who don't know. So to be shown that they themselves don't know would be the worst humiliation, and we'll see what Jesus does once he finds out that they've been talking to his disciples behind his back. And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners, and this is the crown of these few verses. It's the prostitute, the tax collector, the thief the one who is openly unrighteous, who has a more honest understanding of what 
the human condition is because they don't have the opportunity that is afforded those in positions of honor to pretend that they are righteous. The Lord, who shows no partiality, sees no difference between a priest and a prostitute. The human being sees a difference between the priest and the prostitute because the fallacy of civilization is predicated on civilized people versus uncivilized people, good people versus bad people. The house of cards that is the temple in Jerusalem is predicated on this lie. So it's actually those who can't escape their unrighteousness and who are put to shame publicly, which is what will happen to Jesus on the cross. It is those who are put to shame publicly who are in the correct frame of mind to receive the gospel. The people who are willing to drop everything and listen to Jesus, Jesus is 100% for them. People who are not interested in listening and talking behind his back, he's got no time for and he's going to keep moving. It's not that the Pharisees and the scribes don't need a physician. It's that they don't know they're in need of a physician. They imagine that they're well and they're not going to the doctor. The others are running to the doctor for help. You don't go to the doctor about your heart until you have a heart attack. And Jesus is waiting for the scribes and Pharisees to have a heart attack because they're not interested in stopping smoking and eating better and taking his advice. Here are all these people. I've got more people than I can count who need to learn about how to eat right and stop smoking. I'm going to spend my time on them. Not people who tell me, is it really so important to stop smoking? I don't have time for people like that. There's too many people who need my help. That's why if the sermon doesn't emphasize the fact that you personally are sick and you personally are in need of the gospel, it's not a sermon. People always say, Father Mark, we want to come to church and be inspired and uplifted because our life is so hard during the week. With all due respect, then go worship Zeus or Venus because that's not what we do here. What we do here is what Jesus commands us to do, which is not waste time quibbling and debating and placating people's egos and false premises. We begin with the sledgehammer of Mark, which is the unrighteousness of all. And we get down to business. If you can't get down to business, step aside because we have to save as many as we can as quickly as we can because life is short and the stakes are high. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Again, Jesus has work to do. Get a shovel. Don't debate theology. It's interesting that John's disciples and the Pharisees agree on this point. Fasting is very important. So how could it be that you guys have a correct teaching if you guys aren't fasting? This is where they're coming from because obviously everyone thinks this is right. So Jesus, where are you coming from on this? I can see Jesus with his worry beats and his legs shaking and getting agitated. Guys, come on, we gotta go. Why are we talking about fasting? Don't you get it? And so this is reflected in the next verse. And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Oftentimes when we hear about the bridegroom, we think about people wanting to celebrate at the party, right? But what's interesting here, it's not talking about the people at the party. It's the attendants. It's the people who are ministering to the bridegroom. Before the wedding, I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding, but there's a lot of preparation that needs to happen. And you know what? You may not get as much sleep the night before a wedding as you do another night because you've got a lot of work to take care of. Right. You're trying to get the bridegroom ready for the wedding. This is exactly what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus is trying to get the bride ready 
so that the bride can enter into the wedding. But if the people trying to get the bridegroom ready are worried about this thing and that thing, the wedding's never going to happen. Look, the purpose of a wedding, the function of the bridegroom, is to make a baby with the bride. And we are now at the wedding so that we can start making babies. That's the whole function of the metaphor of the bridal chamber, which is a famous theme in Byzantine hymnography. You're trying to stop Jesus from producing disciples. I mean, really? You want to talk about fasting when it's the feast day? Not to mention, it was at the feast with the sinners and the tax collectors that he was doing his job. You want me not to eat with these people? Look, I have to teach. I'm teaching. Why are you getting in my way? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And this refers specifically not to a period of history, the way people read it. This refers specifically to the period between the crucifixion and the descent of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit takes Jesus' place to continue the work of carrying the teaching to the nations. You have to produce children of the Torah. This is one gigantic bar mitzvah. That is what Mark is. It's a bar mitzvah for the whole world. The whole world now can come of age and become a son of the commandment. God commands us to be fruitful and multiply. And if we start joining, like you said, the idea of the Holy Spirit that we were talking about last time with what Jesus is doing here, here Jesus is moving, 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 teaching, 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 teaching with no pause. If we look at how the Holy Spirit functions in Acts, the Holy Spirit is moving the apostles to teach, to teach, to teach. It's the, without Jesus moving, 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 now the disciples have to move. But how are the disciples going to move? They're going to move with that spirit that moved Jesus to keep them moving, to keep them in a rush, to keep them hurrying, making sure that they are teaching because there is no time to waste. It's a sense of urgency, both with Jesus in Mark and then with Holy Spirit in Acts. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. Here, I just want to make an important point, and then we can take both verses together, verse 21 and 22. People hear this, and they begin thinking in Hegelian terms, which is the way Hillary Clinton's campaign thought about history, and look where that led them. There is no progress We're not on the right side of history. We're all unrighteous. Relax. So people hear this and they think, oh, you know, we're the new and the Jews were the old. No, this is the wrong thinking. Or we don't need the Old Testament now because now we have the teaching of Jesus. No, this is also incorrect thinking. The problem here is the false premise, the old thinking, the belief that the function of the Torah was to lift up Israel as being righteous. And that's how you use fasting. That's how you use the Torah. When in fact the function of the Torah, as Paul teaches us, was to make out of Israel an example. And it's funny, the prayers of absolution in the Byzantine church talk about making an example out of the one confessing their sins. Because the hymnographer understood correctly that Israel's role as chosen is their role as the one being held up as an example of sin and unrighteousness for the edification of the whole world. So now, instead of that, the scribes and the Pharisees are judging Jesus, judging his disciples. This is the old 
understanding, the false understanding. The correct understanding is that the Torah is meant to put us all on the same level. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. The scribes and Pharisees, as well as John's disciples, they have a certain matrix, they have a certain way that they understand things. And Jesus has his way of doing things. He has his teaching. It contradicts what they teach and what they think because he is following Torah correctly. So what Jesus is saying is, if I try to fit my teaching into your way of thinking, or the scribes and the Pharisees' way of thinking, it's all going to fall apart. The thing that you do if you have a garment is you use all new cloth. If you want new wine, you got to have all new wineskins. He's like, look, if you guys want to understand my teaching, you're going to have to be ready to start from scratch. And that's exactly what Levi did at the beginning of this passage. He said, I'm going to drop everything and I'm going to go. That's the only way to begin. You have to say, I am dropping everything. This is the problem when we talk about Christianity in this country because it's infused with all kinds of culture wars and cultural sense of who we are from Western Europe and the relationship between Western Europe and the Muslim Empire of the Middle Ages and there's all kinds of things that are infused in what we understand Christianity to be. But we have to understand it in these very basic terms that Mark is trying to teach us. That's where we have to start. If we're going to understand Mark, we have to assume we have never heard of Christianity. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? This is the old way of understanding the Torah. Old in terms of the metaphor that's being presented in Mark, old versus new. This is the old wineskin. This is the old cloth. It's not that this is what the Torah is saying. It's saying that this is a very old sin, a very old misunderstanding of God's commandment. And it's a misunderstanding that's codified in the story of the Pentateuch because Israel repeatedly misunderstands God's judgment. I mean, they have an understanding that's very shallow. It says don't do any work on the Sabbath, and they're like, hey, they're out harvesting grain. This is work. But the problem is that the Pharisees want to keep and hold fast to Torah which is correct, actually, literally, that you are supposed to hold on, you're supposed to keep shamar, as the word in Hebrew, to guard the Torah. But the problem is, by holding on to it, the sinners and the tax collectors never get it, because we need to make sure that we don't accidentally mix with somebody that we shouldn't. Jesus is feeding his disciples because they do not have time to lose. They have to keep teaching Torah. They do not have the luxury of following all the literal commandments because it is all subservient to the idea that Jesus must teach, continue to teach without stopping, without breaks. He must continue. And if we can walk and eat at the same time, even better. The metaphor of bread can't be overlooked here because bread, the the manna from heaven, is the bread of God's instruction. So... On top of your point, there's this overarching theme that Jesus is running around sharing bread with everybody. But the scribes and the Pharisees want to keep the grain stored in their temple for their use. 
So very important. And the next example that Jesus gives bears this out. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need? And he and his companions became hungry. How he entered the house of God in the time of Aviathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. In other words, David acted correctly because the whole purpose of the law, the whole purpose of God's instruction for Israel is community and fellowship and taking care of each other, making sure your neighbor is looked after. David was acting correctly as a shepherd. Might be a king, but he's acting like a shepherd, which is correct. He is feeding those in need. Well, in that story, David is leading his people and he is functioning under the commandment of God as he's moving. He's having to move quickly. He's having to protect his people. He has a mission to accomplish in a very similar way as Jesus. Well, and Jesus is the shepherd here who's extending the reach of his flock. He's expanding his flock. He's taking responsibility for a much broader set of needy people. So this idea of the bread and the teaching linked beautifully here with this idea of teaching and taking care of the needy. It's very powerful. I don't want those images to be lost on our listeners. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, which is Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians. Food is for the stomach. The stomach is not for food. In other words, the whole purpose of the Torah and the prophets and all of the writings is for the sake of the student. You can't reverse it so that people's priorities are backwards. If the law is telling you to take care of people who are hungry, Should you use the law to enslave the hungry to serve you? That's how they have it backwards. Because the scribes and the Pharisees are using the law for self-service instead of service to their students. They're not even serving the Gentiles. The Ten Commandments tell us to keep the Sabbath in two different ways. It appears two different times in the Old Testament. One time is you keep it holy. Another time it's because you were slaves in Egypt. So... What does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? Does it mean not harvest grain? What does it mean to remember that you were a slave in Egypt? It's to show mercy to those who are enslaved. Absolutely. And so when you say don't eat, that means Jesus and his disciples can't travel that day. If they can't travel that day, that means there are people who are going to go 24 hours without hearing Torah. Just like in the house where everyone was stopping Jesus from exiting the house and moving along where Jesus had to sneak out, the scribes and the Pharisees are preventing Torah going to the people in need, going to those who are enslaved by the teaching of the world. Jesus has a teaching that says you do not have to be enslaved to this world just as Moses brought out the people from their slavery so that they could receive the word of God. Jesus is trying to create a people serving God, just like those attendants to the bridegroom. He's trying to rally the people around this Torah, give them something that will free them from their daily slavery. And the Pharisees saying you're not supposed to pick and eat is preventing that word from going out. And this is time and time again what the Pharisees and the scribes do. They prevent the word from going out. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The presupposition of Jesus that this whole business is about serving eliminates the authority of everybody else around Jesus. 
you want to understand the function of the Sabbath, you have to go to the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a means to an end. It's to remind you of holiness and to remind you of slavery, but not to just sit on your butt and do nothing. And hoard the grain in the temple. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Have a great week. the bible as literature thanks for listening the bible as literature is a production of the ephesus school network